You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. You're listening to Latin Ways. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I'm delighted to be joined by Jorge Martí. He is the Secretariat of Hands Up Venezuela. Welcome to our show, Jorge. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Now, the war in Ukraine um, started. There seems to be no ceasefire to, or resolution anywhere in sight. Um there are many things that are worrisome. First, the impact that this will have in terms of um, food supplies to Africa and Asia. But more importantly, how should we look at this event and what must we take note of? Yes, well, first of all, I'd say that um, as in any war, what we see in the media is a big uh, campaign of propaganda, which is uh, commonly known as the fog of war. So it's very difficult to find out exactly what is happening on the terrain and and uh, and, and, uh, and the media in the imperialist countries where, where we live. They continually say that uh, Russia has been defeated, that Ukraine is winning and all of that. Uh, but the reality on the ground is the opposite. And I think that this is starting now to filter through the, through the mass media. There's been in the last few days a number of alarmist reports saying uh, basically what the situation is is on the ground. Russia has uh, superiority in front of the Ukrainian army in terms, particularly in terms of artillery, and so they are advancing in the in the Donbas, which is one of the of the aims. And uh, the Ukrainian army has been forced to retreat, and this is despite the enormous amount of military help that the West and particularly the United States have given to Ukraine. Uh, I think the total now for the United States alone is $53 billion. We're talking about a huge amount of uh, of money, uh, weaponry, ammunition, also the sharing of intelligence and advice and so on. In fact, uh, at this point, it's very difficult to argue that this is a war between Russia and Ukraine, which is, which is how it started. But in fact, it has com- completely uh, turned into a into a proxy war in which the United States is fighting uh, Russia in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are the ones who are putting... Uh, uh, the Ukraine is a country that is being destroyed, raised to the ground in many cases. And it's Ukrainian and Russian soldiers who are dying on, on the battlefront and, uh, and uh, also innocent civilians. But in fact, this is a, this is a war that's been pushed and, uh, and uh, promoted by the United States. In fact, uh, you talk about ceasefire negotiations in, in March, a month into the war, into the Russian invasion. There the were talks, uh, and the talks were quite close to reaching some sort of agreement. But at the beginning of April, when Boris Johnson visited Kiev, he told Zelensky in no uncertain terms that the West was not going to accept any of this uh, uh, terms for this uh, for this peace agreement or, or these negotiations, which included the West giving uh, security guarantees to Ukraine. So they said they were they were going to sabotage these negotiations because they wanted the war to continue, uh, basically, because their aim in the war is to weaken Russia 
And they, they calculated that by supplying Ukraine with enough weapons, they will uh, be able to bog down uh, Russia in a war they can't win. Uh, but in fact, what's been happening on the ground is the opposite. After an initial attempt of uh, bringing down the, the Ukrainian government by, by uh, an offensive on the main cities, now uh, Russia has changed its uh, tactics and is advancing in, in the Donbas, slowly but uh, surely. And uh, there's not much that the Ukrainians can do, no, no matter w what amount of uh, Western military aid they've been given. So this is the basic situation of the, of the war. So I think this is my uh, appraisal, though it's difficult to know, but my appraisal is that uh, once Russia achieve, achieves it, its immediate aims, the complete control of the Donbass and the strengthening of their position in Zaporizhia and, and Kherson, then they will offer again peace talks, and uh, Zelensky is going to be forced to negotiate in worse conditions uh, and in worse terms than, than it would have been the case two months ago in, in March, April, when the negotiations were taking place. Uh, this is on the one hand. Then you're talking about the impact on world's, the world's food supply. So obviously, the Ukraine and uh, Russia, they're both major exporters of agricultural goods, wheat, soy, palm seed oil and other stuff or agricultural products and some countries are extremely dependent on this so because the supply of this has been disrupted partly because of the war partly because of uh, western sanctions on russia what has happened is that um, many other countries have now taken protectionist measures they're not exporting grain they're keeping it for themselves the prices are going up and this is creating severe problems in many countries. Egypt is one that comes to mind, but many other countries depend on the import of, uh, of food and grain. Uh, on top of this, there's other problems because uh, the crisis in relation to energy prices has also brought up the price of fertilizer, of which the, Russia is also one of the main world's exporters. It's also been sanctioned. And uh, the, the, the increase in the prices of fertilizer are pushing also generally agricultural prices up. This is something that started before the war. And then on top of this, the war and the sanctions on Russia have uh, worsened the cost of living crisis in relation to energy prices. Uh, you're talking about third world countries, but here we're talking also about uh, advanced capitalist countries in Europe and in the United States, particularly in Europe. Because it's very easy for, for Biden and U.S. imperialism to say, no, you have to cut, you have to ban the import of uh, Russian oil and gas. But Europe really depends, completely, is completely dependent on, uh, on Russia sources of energy. They cannot impose sanctions. In fact, these sanctions have had the opposite effect because prices have gone up as a result of sanctions. Russia's income from the sale of uh, oil and gas has gone up from what it was before. And the ones who have been paying the price for these sanctions is the Western, uh, the Western countries, and more specifically, Western consumers. Uh, here, here in Britain, uh, inflation is now 9%. I think in the US, they just announced a figure of 8%. And this is after many years of very, very low inflation of, of 0, 1, 2%. And uh, so it's the pockets of ordinary working people which are being uh, badly affected by this completely irresponsible behavior of Western imperialism that provoked this war and now wants to prolong it as, as much as possible.
So, yeah, this is the situation uh, as far as I can see it now. Obviously, the invasion of Ukraine is a crime, uh, as was the U.S. invasion of Iraq. These are crimes um, against peace for which, you know, the the criminals never get punished, but it's really the people who are at the center of those wars that suffer. And and so in Ukraine, we know that the people of Ukraine will probably be the ones carrying the true cost of this war. Um, I also want to talk about the consequences of uh, the U.S. fighting a proxy war with a nation that has nuclear arms and that has the capacity to, you know, engage in nuclear war. Yeah, this is obviously in the background of, of this whole situation, the fact that uh, Russia has a large uh, nuclear weapons uh, arsenal, which is inherited from the Soviet Union. And this, is also, this also enters into in the calculations of the, um, of the Western imperialist powers, because they say, yeah, we're going to support Ukraine, uh, but we're not going to intervene directly in this war, meaning, meaning they're not going to send actual troops on the ground, or they're not going to hit uh, Russia. For instance, they've been very careful not to supply Ukraine with uh, <laughs> weapons, artillery, of a certain range that will be able to hit Russian territory because they don't want an all-out conflagration with uh, Russia. What they want is a a small, in inverted commas, and I don't know if many people realize that Ukraine is larger in territory than Iraq, for instance, and it's larger in in population as well. Um, So it's a so-called small war, contained war, in which um, Russia is weakened. But uh, at the same time, they don't want an all-out con- con- confrontation with um, with uh, with Russia because, obviously, of the of the nuclear weapons. In fact, the the ruling class, the capitalists in Russia, in uh, the U.S., in in Europe, when they wage war, they wage war for for raw materials, for uh, markets, for sources of energy, for spheres of influence. They, they wage war for profit. If there was to be a nuclear war, the destruction will be such that there will be no uh, profits left for anyone, never mind the capitalists. So they're very wary of uh, actually escalating this to a nuclear war. But uh, they're playing a very dangerous game. That's the, that's the truth, because uh, Russia has already said that they, um, if certain types of weapons are provided supply to Ukraine, they will consider that uh, this war is being uh, directed not from Kiev, but from uh, Berlin and Washington, and they will act accordingly. This is a serious, uh, it's a serious threat that shouldn't be taken uh, lightly. So yes, basically, the, the peace and livelihoods of millions of people across the globe are being put at stake on the basis of the benefits, the profits, and the narrow interests of capitalists in, in the US, in Russia, and, uh, and elsewhere. I mean, even yesterday, as you know, Putin, when, when he went into the Ukraine, he said he was going in in order to protect the Russian-speaking population and uh, get rid of the, of the Nazis in Ukraine and so on. These are all excuses. In, in fact, he is going there because he, he needs to have uh, a country that's a neighbor, borderland to Russia, where, uh, where NATO is not present. That's, that's his main uh, aim. Uh, and, but yesterday he, he said he compared himself to Peter the Great when he went to war with uh, Sweden over the Baltic countries. And he said that that's what we're doing now. We are recovering land 
that always belonged to Russia. So he's, he's the publicly declaring the imperialist uh, aims of the war, which is, as you say, is exactly the same uh, imperialist aims as when uh, the U.S. and the rest of them went into uh, Iraq or when they went into Afghanistan or when uh, Saudi Arabia is being backed by the West in a murderous uh, bloody war in the, in the Yemen. But obviously, in the media in our countries, we only see one side of the story, the moral outrage and uh, the violation of international law. When it is our own uh, imperialists that violate the, the, the international law, we don't hear about it. Tens of millions of people in Asia, Africa, in the Middle East are literally facing starvation as the war proceeds. Now, we know that starvation has never deterred imperialists from carrying their aims. You know, we've had serious times of starvation throughout history. Um, can you talk a little bit about why is the U.S. so intent in having a NATO base in Ukraine, knowing that this is exacerbating the war and, and the role of NATO, because most people don't realize that NATO is not a peacekeeping, but rather, you know, the army. Yes, no, no, it's not. A, it's not a, a defensive military alliance, as they claim. It's not at all. In fact, this is what they're saying. But in the last few years, even just recently, NATO countries and NATO itself has intervened in a number of foreign wars. For instance, it was NATO that led the bombing of Yugoslavia, of Serbia, in, in 1998. Uh, it was NATO that participated in the war in Afghanistan. I mean, as far as I know, Afghanistan is not in uh, NATO. No NATO countries have been directly uh, attacked by Afghanistan at all. Uh, NATO countries, France, uh, France, Britain, and the U.S. bombed uh, Libya not so long ago, about 10 years ago, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, this is an aggressive military alliance. And since uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, NATO has been expanding eastwards in Europe, basically surrounding Russia in a, in a very aggressive uh, way. The Baltic countries, Poland, Romania, and all of these countries that have joined Georgia wanted to join NATO. Uh, basically, uh, one does not have to sympathize with Putin to see how this can be seen as a, as a threat to the interests of uh, Russia. The idea that uh, the U.S., for instance, uh, withdrew from the Treaty for the Non-Proliferation of Medium-Range Ballistic Missiles, which uh, prevented the installation of missiles in, in Europe because they were too close to, to Russia and vice versa. So the U.S. withdrew from this uh, agreement. All of these are signals to Russia that uh, this is a competition between two rival imperialist powers, and they are not even of the same size. The United States is the most powerful imperialist power on earth. Its military spending is uh, higher than the next 10 powers put together, and so it's no match for, for Russia. But however, Russia has a nuclear arsenal. And in relation to Ukraine, the irony of all this is that uh, the United States had already said that uh, Ukraine could not join NATO in these conditions. Uh, and they already said that the NATO membership for Ukraine was off the agenda for several years. Uh, however, they were not prepared to give a formal commitment to this. And the reason for this is um, because imperialism is a bit like the local bully in the schoolyard. 
uh, is based a lot on prestige and uh, power and the appearance of power. If they uh, were to make concessions to Russia after they had already been forced to withdraw from uh, Afghanistan and, and so on, they will then lose faith and they will lose prestige and they will lose uh, power, really, uh, internationally. They will have been seen as giving in to the demands of an aggressive uh, enemy uh, power. And this couldn't happen. So it was on the basis of prestige, prestige of imperialism, that they didn't want to make any concessions to, to or be seen as making concessions to Russia, reaching an agreement, mutually uh, agreeable uh, understanding about peace and security in Europe, they couldn't do that. And so they, in that respect, they, they were the ones who were provoking this, uh, this conflict in the calculation that they will be able to weaken uh, Russia. It doesn't seem that it's going that way. It's, it's provoking, as, as you say, uh, hunger and suffering for millions around the world, destruction of infrastructure, and uh, loss of life in, uh, in Ukraine and so on, and uh, economic crisis worldwide that the working class will pay for. So that's, that's the result of these uh, provocations and completely irresponsible attitude of the, of the big powers. One of the uh, things that has become very clear is that the empire, the U.S. empire, has no problem going back on their word as well. You know, first they had a blockade against Venezuela, but now with the conflict in Russia, they've gone back asking Venezuela to start, you know, sending them oil. Can we talk a little bit about the uh, impact, uh, political impact this has had in Latin American countries and the social movements that are now making very clear that although the continuous invasions of U.S. troops in the region puts a lot of pressure, the people are not willing to follow the way of empire. Yes, I mean, as you say, this is completely hypocritical. For, for years now, they've been trying to overthrow the government in Venezuela and impose this puppet, uh, while you go in, in power. Uh, the United States has been doing this, using all sorts of uh, means at their disposal, economic uh, sanctions, economic blockade, diplomatic pressure, but also uh, they even uh, organized a failed military incursion by, by mercenaries. Uh, led, led by U.S. Uh, mercenaries, and they completely failed. And for all this time, they said that uh, the government of Venezuela was illegitimate, they had to be removed, they couldn't stay in power. And now they're talking to this government, instead of which they don't recognize, apparently, uh, so that this government can supply oil to uh, Europe in order to make up for the loss of Russian uh, oil, which they themselves have, have sanctioned. So it just goes to show that uh, imperialism really has no uh, principles. International law, uh, diplomacy mean nothing for them other than uh, means to pursue their imperial uh, ambitions. In the meantime, in Latin America, what we see is that there is an enormous revulsion against the policies of imperialism, uh, mass movements against the crisis of capitalism, the election of progressive governments. However, mild they might be, but uh, the, the, which uh, the, these votes really in in, uh, in Argentina, in Chile, in uh, Peru, they reflect the rejection of uh, of the 
whole of the establishment, and the establishment means not only the very rotten character of bourgeois democracies in these countries, but also the, the intervention of imperialism, which is uh, attempted to prevent this, this election, the, the election of this government from taking place. One of the things that really um, is clear is that we are ready for a change. You know, even Colombia made the news in 2020 with large demonstrations that went on for months, um, you know, not not only denouncing the austerity measures of neoliberalism in that country, which is, by the way, one of the U.S. biggest um, army bases, and you know the 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 muscle arm of the empire in Latin America, and yet the people were undeterred. And today they're still in the news. Can we talk a little bit about what's happening in Colombia today? Yes, this is extremely important, as you say. Colombia has six U.S. military bases. It's, a, it's actually an associate member or has a partnership agreement with uh, NATO, uh, even though it's, it's quite clearly not in the North, uh, in the North Atlantic. And, um, and this is a country where the ruling class does not hesitate to uh, kill and eliminate political opponents. Uh, this is a country where, in the world where it's most dangerous to be a trade unionist. You are a trade unionist, you're signing your death warrant most of the times, and uh, peasant leaders, human rights activists, women's uh, defenders have been killed and, and assassinated in, uh, in horrible massacres carried out by paramilitary groups, which are funded and organized by the oligarchy, uh, acting in conjunction with the state, the army, and so on. It's a really horrible uh, place for reactionary policies of its, and the brutal character of its, of its ruling class fully backed by, by U.S. Uh, imperialism. And nevertheless, as you say, there's been big movements in 2020 against police brutality in 2021. One year ago, in, in April 2021, there was this national stoppage, the, the Paro Nacional, the national strike, which lasted for, for the best part of three months. Complete rejection of everything that Duque represented. Duque was the president, is still the sitting president. He was, in, in fact, the person who inherited power from uh, Uribe, who was, uh, was the main leader of this really uh, rotten ruling class involved in narco-trafficking, paramilitary activities, and backed by the United States. And uh, it was, that for different reasons, that national strike uh, achieved some of its aims, the repeal of the tax reform that Duque wanted to introduce, but it didn't manage to bring the government down. And now the people have expressed themselves through the electoral uh, arena by voting for Gustavo Petro, the left-wing uh, candidate, which got 40% of the votes in the, in the first round of the presidential elections. And the uh, candidate of Uribe and Duque, the main candidate of the ruling class, got less than 25% of the, of the votes, uh, Fico Gutierrez. This was a major defeat for the ruling class, and, uh, and I would say that... Uh, Colombian workers, peasants, activists, uh, and so on, the, the youth, they were celebrating uh, this result of the first round. But now there's a second round of the elections. The second round is uh, pitting Petro, a left-wing candidate of the Pacto Historico, this, the historic agreement, against uh, Rodolfo Hernández, um, a person who doesn't even have a party, of his own, and is representing the, the League of Governance, or the League of Governors, something like this, 
And he's a right-wing demagogic populist who uh, is being compared to Trump or to Bolsonaro or to Italy's Berlusconi, a person who's very skilled in using uh, social media to, um, to, to foster and, and spread demagogic statements. He, he says he, he claims he is fighting against corruption, he's fighting against the establishment, but in reality, he has become the main candidate of the establishment. Fico Gutierrez, the right-wing candidate who was defeated, who was defeated, already thrown his lot behind uh, Rodolfo Hernandez. And uh, in reality, he's, he's a bit, yeah, he's a bit like Trump, who pretends to be anti-establishment. And in a certain way, he reflects also rejection of the establishment amongst the people who voted for him. But in reality, he is a candidate of the, of the ruling class. And now the second round of the elections is very close, too close to call. Some, some opinion polls give Rodolfo Hernandez an advantage. Some others give uh, the left-wing uh, Gustavo Petro a small advantage. It's not completely clear how, it will, how it, will, it will pan out. What I can say is that if Gustavo Petro wins, this will be an historic win for Colombia, the first time ever that a left-winger wins a presidential election in, um, in uh, Colombia. And if Rodolfo Hernandez wins, I think that that will not stop the movement of the masses at all. The people completely reject the regime. Once uh, Rodolfo Hernandez proves that he is no anti-establishment candidate, he will be faced with mass mobilizations, as, as did Duque before him. So. so our only source of power really is to unite and to organize. Um, um, summit of the Americas uh, is taking place this week, and Mexico refused to attend. Can you comment on that? In fact, just to go back to your previous point, it's true. Any, any change at the top will happen if there's a mass movement at the bottom. As I said, the, the Colombian election results were the result, were the direct consequence of this mass movement of the national strike a year ago. But yeah, there is this uh, summit of the Americas. This is a meeting of heads of state of the of the American continent, which has been taking place, I think, since 1989, about 30 odd years. It happens in different um, in rotation in different countries in different uh, every year. And this time it was the turn of the United States to organize it, and they uh, holding it in uh, in Los Angeles, uh, starting on Monday this week and finishing today. Yes, the the United States in an extremely provocative way, said that we're not going to invite countries that are not uh, considered democracies. And who, who's to say whether a country is a democracy or not? I mean, the, the United States is not particularly democratic in, the, in their own uh, electoral system, for instance. So they said they were not going to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. And a number of uh, Latin American countries said, well, if you don't invite them, we're not going to go. And amongst these was Mexico's López Obrador, but also president of Bolivia, the new president of uh, Honduras, uh, and, uh, and for his own reasons, the president of uh, Guatemala, for different uh, reasons, and also quite a lot of the CARICOM countries in, in, uh, in the Caribbean. They also said they were not going to go, they were going to protest this. Then other countries, <coughs> sorry, like Chile and Argentina, they said that they will go, but they, they also protested that this situation and so what uh, was supposed to be a, a summit in which Biden was uh, going to shine and uh, explain his ideas about the continent and this and that, has now become a, a very fractious uh, meeting in which uh, 
quite a lot of important countries not participating, <clears throat> and some others were participating in criticizing the host nation, United States. So, um, yeah, in reality, it's, it's an attempt, I will say, to bring back the notion of the Monroe uh, Doctrine from the 19th century when, uh, when, when the United States said, America for the Americans, meaning we don't want the interference of uh, France or Spain or any other powers in America, but uh, in, in translation, what they really meant was the United States wants to control the whole of Latin America. This is our backyard, and here we are going to rule. We're not going to allow anybody else to interfere. Thank you again for being with us. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.